Hey, Jason here. Before we start the show, I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Climate 2020. It's all about how the biggest environmental threat is playing into the biggest election of our time. It's executive produced by Stephen Lacey, a veteran climate and energy journalist and podcaster. And it features former 60 Minutes producer David Gelber and Climate Nexus executive director Jeff Nesbitt as co-hosts. Their team of producers is bringing urgency to the issue, talking to scientists, activists, pollsters, pundits, and voters about how climate change is playing into the election. Again, it's called Climate 2020, and it's a good compliment to this show. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere that you download your shows. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is David Hennemeyer Hansen, also known as DHH on Twitter. I'm sure as many of you know, David is the creator of Ruby on Rails, co-founder and CTO at Basecamp. He's a best-selling author. He's a Le Mans class-winning race car driver, and he's a pretty notable guy, but he isn't exactly climate-focused with his day job, so you might ask, what is he doing coming on the My Climate Journey podcast? Well, David and I got into it back and forth on Twitter about, it started actually talking about offsets, and there was a bit of a debate or a discussion about the role of offsets and whether they are a distraction that convinces people they've done enough and enables them to go back to their ignorance and not making any changes in their lives, or if they are an eye-opener that gets people thinking about climate and caring about the issue, paying attention, better understanding the problem, and then finding other ways to get mobilized around their personal carbon footprint and in other more structural ways over time. Anyways, it was a great chat, so I invited him on my climate journey to talk about it more. So kind of a non-traditional one, but I really enjoyed it. So this discussion was actually broadcast live on Twitter through an app called Talk Show, which is still in beta, but it basically enables people to listen to podcasts live and text questions as the discussion is happening. Uh, I hope you enjoy this discussion with David Hennemeyer Hansen. David, are you there? I'm here. Great. Well, thank you so much for making the time. It's an honor to speak with you and to meet you today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Well, we had a we had a great Twitter exchange on climate stuff maybe a month or so ago, and we've never spoken in person, not even to prep for this. But uh, I thought it was a it was a fun and important dialogue, and it would be good to to talk a little bit more. And uh, and hey, what what better fun than to do it live? Absolutely. I have had some wonderful conversations spring out of contentious Twitter conversations. So always good to bubble up to a live conversation. Yeah. And, I, and I'll tell you, we're, I mean, we come from wildly different backgrounds, but it seems like we're coming at this problem from similar places where, uh, I mean, I know you mentioned to me that you're not an expert and I'm certainly not an expert. And I bet even the experts would say that they're uh, not an expert. So, um, so uh, you know, but, I'm, but I think it's an important problem I'm very concerned about, and it seems like you do as well. And um, I think that's a good starting point to then try to figure out what the responsibilities are and what the roles are of, of each of us to, 
um, you know, to, to try to help. Absolutely. So most people probably know, but but just uh, uh, for for anyone that 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 may not, or, or just for context for the discussion, do you want to take just a couple minutes and and kind of give uh, an introduction to who you are? Sure. So I'm David Heinemar Hansen, D H uh, H on Twitter, and I am a partner at Basecamp. I'm also the CTO at Basecamp, a project management and collaboration tool that. Uh, We've been running for the past 17 years or so, and I'm also the creator of a web framework called Ruby on Rails. And these are really the two main pursuits I've had professionally for the past, uh, well, almost 20 years. And uh, It goes of, by uh, fast, doesn't it? It does go by <laughs> fast. And in and that time, we've sort of taken a bunch of the, the lessons and experiences we've had on that and written a handful of books, uh, the latest being It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, released uh, last year. Well, actually, a little more than that ago, uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, we released a rework in 2010 about running uh, your company in a smarter, better way. And um, yeah, I'm a big proponent on Twitter for all sorts of courses, causes, uh, worker rights, uh, calmer uh, work approaches, uh, how to build uh, web applications in a better way. And I kind of stick my hand in a lot of contentious pies. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's why I kind of end up talking to you about uh, something completely out of my professional wheelhouse, which is climate change. Um, but I think you're, you're absolutely right in the sense that this is just something that inevitably is going to affect all of us. So whether we are experts or not, we should be on the road to at least becoming somewhat well-versed in what the hell is going on. I live in Malibu, California now, and we've had some terrible climate change induced and provoked fires here recently. There's always been fires in Southern California, but they're getting wilder and, and longer and more intense and about a third of Malibu's housing stock burned to the ground uh, two years ago. So it feels personal in a sense that I think anyone who lived next to climate change induced disasters have felt like I'm, I'm sure everyone in Australia right now are starting to think, oh, this climate change is not just a discussion for the experts. It's actually something that's going to affect me and not in 50 years, but right now. So, so once you, I, I guess, how long ago was it that this started becoming acute for you in terms of concern? And, and then as it did, uh, where did you start in terms of trying to make sense of it all and get your bearings? Well, I think actually coming out here to California and starting to live in Southern California. And first we lived through a, what was it? Three or four year drought. Um, that, that wasn't that great. The, this Malibu area that I'd been coming to for about a decade um, suddenly was completely barren. It just looked like sort of wasteland um, compared to what it used to do. And then after that drought, we just got hit year after year. I think it's been three years in a row now where there's just been absolutely catastrophically bad fires out here. And then two years ago, it was so bad that we evacuated for two weeks while a third of Malibu burned to the ground and the entire area was simply just covered in smoke. So I think that that was probably the point where I went from, oh, this is something sort of I care about in the abstract sense, as it goes with anyone, I think. 
um, who doesn't have this as a sort of a main profession or, or otherwise involved with it, when, when you feel it on your own body in, a, in the literal sense that like you're breathing heavy smoke or you can see the flames, um, yeah, it, it's not... It does, it's not optional, right? Like It's not like something special happened to me. This happened to everyone who lived uh, near here. All of a sudden, we all went like, oh, shit, climate change. Uh, it's here for us. I mean, obviously, it's been here for a lot of people for a long time. Um, but that was sort of the, the, the visceral introduction. And then um, I read a great book called The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells that goes over the consequences of global warming, goes over the trajectory you're currently on, goes over the most recent science um, and how that has actually changed rapidly just in the last few years and talks about what does society look like if not only we're going to break the Paris target of two degrees, keeping below two degrees, but what happens at three degrees? What happens at four degrees? What happens at six degrees or eight degrees? And I mean, it's as scary as any dystopian science fiction post-apocalyptic novel you'd ever read, right? It's the world at six degrees is, is a very bad one. Um, so I think that that really helped kind of provide me with a more concrete framework for how to think about it. It just gave me a bunch of sort of basic facts like the fact that we've doubled the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in just the last 25 years. I'm like, I remember that entire time. I'm 40 years old. Like the last 25 years, like that's all me. That's all us. Like this wasn't something that just accumulated slowly since the stone age. No, I mean, we've literally doubled since as one of the quotes went, I think since Seinfeld was aired, we've doubled the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And we keep setting new records. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of what brought me to the sense of, like, this is a disaster. I mean, and it's a disaster we're watching in real time, and we're really not doing anything about it. We keep setting new records for the amount of uh, greenhouse gases released. Um, and, and this is why I think we need some sort of dramatic... Um, kind of awareness raised about this. And and perhaps the sad answer is that the only real drama that'll change people's mind is when their home or their neighbor's home is either flooded, burned down, uh, uninhabitable because of heat or change. Um, can you actually convince someone to change their way of life by rational argument? I'm not so sure. Actually, I mean, I think all the evidence is, no, you can't because that's what people have been trying to do for the past 20, 30 years, and it hasn't worked. So, I, I mean, a lot of people that, that, uh, um, that care about this problem describe an, an awakening of sorts where it's, it's kind of like a, a red pill or blue pill moment where, where once you open your eyes and you understand the magnitude of the problem as you've been describing, then you can't stop thinking about it. And then anything you try to do, it's in the back of your head and you feel like, why aren't we doing more? Why aren't I doing more? And this is bad and holy crap. And I certainly had one of those moments and, and that's why I'm here doing what I'm doing. So I'm curious, given that you're as concerned as you describe, uh, you know, talk to me about how that manifests in terms of, you know, what, what you'll do about it or how you'll go about figuring out what to do about it or just kind of now that you know, what do you do with that information? 
yeah, that's that's one of those uh, damaging factors where, where in some ways you almost you, you're like the the guy sitting in Matrix in the Matrix chewing on the steak, going like ignorance is bliss. I'd almost rather not know because it really is um, just existentially dread fulfilling to to think about this because you can go like okay, we can definitely do some things ourselves, and we should. Um, but that's also not going to change the trajectory, right? And and then I think of the fact that even prior to my personal increased awareness of this, like there were people who knew all this. Like, there, yeah, there, there's some new information coming out. There's some new science. But like the general trajectory of everything, I mean, we've known about that since what, the 80s at least. Um, and certainly by the mid 90s, um, uh, the inconvenient truths and so on. Like the information has been out there and that hasn't been enough to really do anything. So th that's kind of where I'm, I'm flip-flopping back between this intense pessimism that anything is actually going to change until it's essentially too late or, or at least until the effects are so dire that you can't not change. And, and by that point, it'll be catastrophically late. Um, and then at the same time thinking, well, we can't just give up. We can't just roll over and die. Um, so we sh should try to do something. So for, for us, uh, I did a carbon budget for our family uh, a while back and um it was it was interesting because first of all it, it was more complicated than i thought it should be like uh, i had to sort of piece a bunch of different things together oh what's the um, um co2 average co2 um, outlet per kilowatt hours in california and like this that and the other thing um and, but the final budget for us was that the number one thing was flying um, which was something I'd picked up on by, by Greta's um, advocacy, obviously basically saying like, why are you flying? Like this, this, is, this is not great. And it's one of those things where everything is small, almost everything is small in its individual sense. People say like, I think um, flight traffic is something like what, two to 4% or something of total emissions. And you go like, well, we're, we're, we can't change this by, not ch by only changing two to 4%. And then you hear something like Australia goes like, well, our total contribution to, to the whole uh, CO2 outlet is like only two to 4%. Like, there's a lot of things that are two to 4%. And I mean, unless we're willing to tackle some of those things, um, yeah, we're never going to get there. there. There's not one lever you can just pull and you're going to get 100% of what you need. Um, the transformation that we need are a ton of things that are two to four percent so on the specifics of flight it totally made me feel guilty and it made me feel guilty because i fly a fair amount um i fly for uh because we've lived in different places around the world i fly for uh racing i fly for conferences i fly for meetups at our company i fly for a bunch of reasons where you could go like you know what like these are not existential reasons um, i fly for vacations and and uh, is that is that reasonable? Can we keep doing that? Um, th does it make sense for me to take the the personal sacrifice in the great model of Greta and saying like, no, we're simply just going to travel everywhere by train or boat or or what have you? Um, those are some of the things I think everyone needs to to struggle with. But what I wanted to do at least was to struggle with that on a personal level, because I'll, uh, at the same time, a lot of people go like, well, this requires collective action. And totally true, it does. Um, we're not, we're not going to solve this by a few enlightened 
individuals really rehabbing their entire life. It requires collective action. But what is that collective action? The collective action is scaling up the individual action, right? So if we, for example, take the flying, like I, I think the, the, the estimates right now is that uh, in 2050 or something, we're going to fly twice as much as we do today. And there's, there's no estimates saying that like flying is going to get any materially lighter on the environment because we just like the energy de density and all these things required to say make uh, planes fly on batteries. It's not like two decades out. That's much further out than that. So if flying is essentially a, a significant contributor and we want to do collective action, what is that collection, collective action? Obviously it's less flying, right? So that's what sort of the government action and scaling that option action up is going to be. So in some ways, people who are making individual action, they're essentially just test driving what we should all be doing, what the collection action should be. So, But, but I guess, so I don't disagree with any of that, but going back to what you said about Malibu and how uh, <coughs> you were skeptical that people were going to care until it really acutely affects them in a way that's quite tangible. Um, and while the symptoms are becoming more visible and more frequent and storms are becoming more intense and, and things like that. On any given day, the percentage of people that are being affected in that acute way is, is actually pretty small percentage wise, yet we all are responsible collectively for the, you know, for the carbon budget and for emissions and, and things like that. So, um, so this awakening that you're talking about, I mean, is it realistic to think that as consumers with our own personal footprint, that 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 in the aggregate that those changes are ever going to add up to enough to matter? No, but that's not what I really put my hope in. I put my hope in the fact that people who have personal scars on their psyche from being exposed directly, personally, bodily to climate change, they're going to make different political decisions. They're going to vote differently. Um, we've already sort of seen that in if you trend how important is climate change to you over periods of time, it's on, on a huge surge. There's a ton more people now saying this is an important political uh, topic. This is something I'm going to impart, have influenced my votes um, in a way that just wasn't true at all, even five or 10 years ago, where you really kind of, it was a very niche topic. And I think as more and more people are simply getting exposed to the effects of China, climate change, whether that's like on a day-to-day -day basis or it's just once a year, as it, it, it mostly is out here in, in Southern California, like that's going to leave the kinds of scars that hopefully is going to provoke the political action. But you know what? Uh, on the whole, yeah, I'm pretty pessimistic. Um, after I, I was finishing up The Uninhabitable Earth, and as most of these um, books do, they end on kind of like a cautiously optimistic note. Like everything is terrible. We're going in a terrible direction. But if, if we right now completely reshaped how we did it, there's still time. And like they post that as like, that's a dangling piece of hope. And it, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not seeing it. I, I really am not. So I think the, by far the most overwhelmingly likely scenario is that we're not going to fix this problem until we're faced with all the most dire consequences, until we've hit 2C or 3C or maybe even 4C until there are millions of climate refugees, until there are huge areas of rich Western countries getting flooded or burned out to, to such a point where it feels like it's a literal emergency, not a 
sort of theoretical emergency, but it's an emergency in the sense of like, my house is burning kind of emergency, right? Like it's kind of the, the isn't cartoon that, isn't with the that dog. Just an excuse to go, is, isn't that just an excuse to go back to doing whatever it is that we normally do and, and put our, you know, put, put our earmuffs back on and pretend that this problem isn't there? Uh, I don't know if it's that. If, to me, that's just an assessment of, of reality. I'm, I'm still looking at it from, from our perspective. What can we do, right? Because even if I think the most likely outcome is we're going to burn this earth to the ground, and then, I mean, the earth is going to be fine on a, on a millennial timescale, right? Like, it's going to recover. Um, we might not. <laughs> Society might not. Uh, civilization might not. But um, I, I want to sort of go into that thinking, like, at least we did, we did something. But at the same time, I mean, we're all hypocrites, right? Like most people are not willing to essentially be carbon neutral in their life. Um, and then let, we find all these this, rationalization to, to not be it. But let's play this forward. So you said your hope is the people that feel it acutely um, move towards political action in terms of how they vote. So if, so when that happens, if that's your hope, like, what political action and how should they vote and what types of policies should be put in place? Like, what do we do? What are, what are we striving to do? I think the, the main proposal that's up there right now is the, the Green New Deal. Um, and like, that's a, a grab bag of a lot of different ideas. Um, but I, I, part of me has such pessimism to it, because if you look at one of the things that have inspired the most backlash around the world, um, it's been raising fuel prices, for example. And for very good reason. Fuel prices for uh, a lot of people is a material part of their, their budget. You saw the, the yellow vest uh, movement in, in France came off um, essentially sort of related to that, right? Like a lot of different factors. But you've seen it in other places too. And this is one of the things we need to, to have happen. Uh, but obviously it can't happen in, in isolation. Can't just raise fuel prices and then say to, uh, to poor middle-class people, well, too bad for you, right? Like it needs to come together with redistribution and mitigating the impacts on people who are most affected by it. And like, we can't even in the US seem to think that like a wealth tax is a good idea. Like, do we really have the political courage to do these things that need to be done? Um, I hope so, right? Like uh, there, there's candidates out there now from, from Bernie Sanders to AOC to, to others who are very forceful in their um, language around what needs to be done. Are they able to do those things? Do Americans want those things actually at the end of the day? Like you look at some of these surveys on number of people who think climate change is a major issue, large number, right? Number of people who personally want to do anything to change their current lifestyle, uh, much smaller, right? Especially once it gets specific. Um, would you pay seven bucks a gallon for gas? And then people go like, what? No, of course not. Are you crazy? That can't be it. Like something else. Politicians do something, right? And <coughs> I think that's that's sort of part of it. Is is like it's a it's hard to change a big ship, like especially American society that's been so uh, built around, for example, the automobile. Um, like, what what are you going to tell people who who, who lives a, an hour's drive away from work? Like, hey, get on your bicycle. Um, mm, it, it's not really a whole answer. Um, so yeah, I, I'm pretty pessimistic at the overall picture. And then I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that like something is going to change and maybe that change is going to come through other things that we're going to realize that, or, or the, the voting public is going to essentially decide 
that um, they want something radically new, right? Like they, let's say Bernie Sanders in the U.S., for example, is voted president. And there's some hope there that like there's some for America radical ideas in there that opens up the 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 overtone window and we could discuss some radical changes to the economy as a as a whole i, I don't have a lot of faith though well what i hear from you is that in order to change it needs to affect people acutely and that for most people it hasn't affected them acutely yet and so we need to wait until two degrees three degrees five degrees and things to get really really no bad no, for, no, for- no 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 i'm not saying okay. wait for anything i'm okay. i'm the only thing i'm describing is reality not even reality, my expectations, the odds of reality. Okay, but if that's true, then it would lead me to believe, and I'm curious if you agree or disagree, that if there are a way to get a higher percentage of people to care that haven't yet been affected acutely, that it would be a good thing, true or false? Oh, of course true, but like that has been the project for the past 20 years. Okay, So, but but the whole Twitter exchange that we had that led to this discussion was that uh, was that offsets, for example, we were talking about offsets and they're crap and, and it gives people an excuse for inaction and all these things. And like, certainly yes. there's a, yeah. And, 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 uh, um, and those are all valid concerns, right? The other side of offsets, and I'm not saying that offsets fulfill this, but I'm saying the hope would be that offset or something would find a way to get people that haven't taken the red pill yet to get to take the red pill by starting somewhere and getting some type of exposure and some type of enlightenment to get more awareness. And then they ha- say, oh crap, because as they get more awareness, they get more concern. And the next thing you know, they're mobilized in other ways beyond wherever it is that they started. So maybe offsets isn't the thing, but I guess my question for you is, what could be the thing given that we both agree that it would be impactful if there was a thing that could get more people to care that aren't yet acutely affected? I, I wish I knew, but th- I think the problem with offsets is that not only are most of them crap. Most of them are snake oil. Um, and it's actually very difficult. We've been looking at this uh, uh, problem and I've been talking to uh, Toby, the CEO of, of Shopify. They, they announced that they're um, going for carbon neutral for Shopify. And uh, he's personally very uh, sort of interested and involved in this. And they're trying to find sort of what are the real things you could do? Because I think the problem is that once you give people essentially a fake solution that doesn't work, they think they've done their part. And it actually, not, it doesn't lead to taking anyone taking the red pill. In anything, if anything, it prevents them from taking the red pill. They feel like, well, I've done my part, right? Like, hey, uh, we don't, uh, we don't use plastic straws anymore. Like, I've done my part for society. I think there's, and this is not just. I mean, I'm essentially just advancing a narrative and an analysis uh, presented by lots of people over time. Um, I found the one version of it uh, by Sisek, the um, philosopher, um, compelling on this, that, that he has this, this great um, analogy of, of someone going to Starbucks to buy their $5 cup of coffee and, and then they donate like 50 cent to some charity. And then like, oh, I've done my part. Like not only do I get to continue sort of in this, uh, commercial uh, existing lane that I'm in, not really changing anything about my behavior, I get to also feel good about it. And I'd rather actually that people feel shitty about not doing anything than feeling good about not doing anything. I think that has more potential, more seeds planted for um, eventually doing real action that actually means something. So, 
So there's certainly an argument that if it's going to delude ourselves into thinking that we're there, then let's not even bother and let's just hold out for the good stuff. But the other side of that is that if you talk to the people that I've only been, you know, working on this problem for a little over a year, there's people that have been working on it for decades and decades, as you said. And what those people tell me is that they've never seen as much energy and attention in this area as there is today. Now, it's still far too little. I agree, right? But it's going in the right direction and momentum begets momentum. And so if we hold out for like the grand slam type of thing, right, it might be that the best way to get to the grand slam like type of thing is to put up some base hits and doubles and get on the board. So um, like, if you look at any type of news, the, 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 the Bezos news with the $10 billion, the, the Microsoft news, the Delta news, right? Like there's more dropping every week and you can say, but yeah, but relative to where we need to be, we're screwed. And I don't disagree, but yet Momentum begets momentum, and so if we again, if we if we if we hold out and and let you know perfect be the enemy of good enough, then we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Well, you, you at least have to start with good enough, which starts with like what you're doing actually having some impact, right? So when we talk about offsets, for example, there's clearly demonstrably a bunch of these offset programs that are worth are, are worth less than nothing. In some cases, they're net negative. In other cases, they they just don't do anything. I, I, that to me is not a solid ground to build on. That doesn't mean it's all that. It doesn't mean that there's uh, that, like for example, planting trees has no sort of impact on it. But I'm I'm very wary of letting any of these things serve as essentially indulgences, where we think, oh, I've signed up to plant I don't know x number of trees that in what 50 years is going to um, fulfill their kind of specked out speculative carbon sequestration. Uh, and, and that means I, I don't have to change my flying habits. You know what? I, I don't think that that's the, uh, I don't think that's the path. Um, so in some ways, um, I think as we talk about like, what is it that actually inspires people to real action? I think it's, it's like what's happening in Australia right now. I think Australia right now is going to be a really interesting case because here you have I thought I saw one stat that said like half of all Australians have been directly impacted by the fires, either by literally being like in flames or their community being in flames or by the immense amount of smog and, and whatever, right? That if that doesn't change the political equation in Australia, I mean, yeah, then we're truly all fucked. Because here you have an entire country that's been affected at least on sort of rich Western scale affected the most. And they have an absolutely atrocious political approach to climate change. I mean, the the current sitting government, it's blaming, what was it like exploding uh, cow poop or something like that was the reason for the fires. I thought was one of the early <laughs> excuses and essentially heavy backers of the coal industry and, and so forth. So if that amount of, trauma inflicted on an entire country over that long a period of time if that can't change anything yeah i think i think we're doomed so 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 given that context what do you think then about uh authoritarianism for example versus democracy in terms of ability to get big stuff done quickly without friction yeah, this is a great topic. Um, one of my favorite books is a, a book called um, The Order of uh, Political Order and Political Decay, which basically details sort of the 5,000 year history of uh, political order and political decay. And, and political decay is defined as the inability for 
the ruling class of the government to address the pressing needs of society. And I think we are in extreme political decay right now as it comes to um, as it comes to climate change. And uh, like, what's the answer to that? Um, I think there's there's obviously hard question, but I, I think if you look back on some of the things like the uh, what was it like late seventies, early eighties? There was the whole Freon thing that we were creating a hole in the ozone layer, and on that topic, the sort of democratic world kind of came together and said, like, oh, maybe our fridges and so on shouldn't just be releasing all this Freon. Uh, it's creating a hole in the ozone layer. That's not a good thing. Let's ban the substances that that led to that, and that happened. And you went like, wow, that's actually kind of amazing that the entire sort of international community came together and, and made that happen. But first of all, I think that that time, <clears throat> it was an easier time to enact those things. I think uh, the, the, uh, the um, uh, what do you call it? The antagonism that's currently present in a lot of Western political systems um, is, is at all time record highs. Uh, the polarizations are at all time record highs. Like we're so much worse off in terms of the democratic fundamentals uh, today to enact those big changes than we were in the 70s and 80s where they had to deal with a comparably speaking much smaller problem of just Freon creating holes in the ozone layer. Um, but then you look at like, oh, well, can is China the hope, right? Like, can, can you just sort of have an authoritarian regime enact this? I don't have a whole lot of hope there either. I mean, China is dealing with some of the most severe impacts of smog and so on. I, uh, for, for a long time, I went to Shanghai once a year. And like there were times when I went there where I wouldn't see the sun at any point. And the reason was not because it was cloudy. Just the smog was so heavy, you could barely see in front of you. So here you have an entire society heavily dealing with it. It's tons of deaths from it, right? Like they essentially, you could say, have the power to just do something by decree. And yet they're building more coal plants than, than ever and their emissions are, are still on, on the fast rise. So I, I don't necessarily see uh, a lot of promise there either. But I do see actually, <laughs> that's not entirely fair. I do see that should things get so bad that it essentially feels like we're at the end of the world, that we are in this post-apocalyptic environment there's going to be a great appeal for a strong man to come out right so this is one of those dangers the longer we fail as modern democracies to address this existential threat um the more we're essentially sort of lining up and getting ready for it to get so bad that people are going to go like yeah democracy is broken um we want something else and and now we're truly at the end of the world well, you mentioned the Green New Deal, and it's interesting because the Green New Deal seems to t say everything's interrelated. So if we don't solve everything, we'll solve nothing, right? But I mean, growing up as a as a longtime, you know, kind of scrappy from zero entrepreneur operating in a world of extreme constraints, I was always taught that like you focus on one thing and you nail it, and the thinner that focus, the better you can do the job, and then you expand from there from a position of strength versus you know trying to be a little bit to a lot of people. So. How do you think about that in the context of this problem? I think it's too big for that kind of thinking. I think the Green New Deal has the right answer here, that it is intersectional. It is interrelated. It is coupled in all these ways that we can't just go like, oh, it's just one thing. Or if we can just reduce uh, uh, driving cars, like let's just raise the 
the price of gasoline to a point such that number of miles driven in the U.S. plummet, right? You could say, like, that's a narrow, quote, unquote, solution. But unless you're addressing the issues of, well, what happens to, to people who still need to drive to get to work, right? Then you may very well just be um, sort of making things worse, uh, as has happened in a, in a lot of sort of regimes where they just went like, well, let's just raise the price of, of gas. And then like poor people is just going to have to deal with that. Mm, you know what? Poor people aren't just going to deal with that. They're going to fucking rebel. They're going to revolt. Um, and like, how are you going to fix things doing that? Right. Like uh, yellow vest movement in, in France is, is sort of one example of this, that unless you're addressing all these issues at the same time, um, it's very possible that it's not po uh, that that you can't unlock any of them. That you can't unlock these. You can't untangle it in isolation, especially since the, the issue is so large, right? Like so we we're just talking about. Even when you take something as large as air travel, which is a huge contributor to global warming, it's still only two to four percent, right? So we can't just say like, let's say we solved air travel. Yeah, the Earth is still going to burn. Right. Like we can't and we don't have the time. That's the other part. Like, let's say we do this, this whole thing where, where we solve air travel over the next 30 years. Right. And that was the one thing we were focused on. Yeah. Time's up. It's, it's three degrees Celsius warmer outside. Game over. So I do think you need this radical um, thinking. And, and I think that's also why they're borrowing the language of the New Deal. If you look back on American history and what the New Deal was, it was a ton of things at the same time. It wasn't just this narrow one-off solution that's going to sort of allow us to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. No, it was a really comprehensive overhaul of a ton of things at the same time to address root cause issues that didn't yield to a scalpel, scalpel right? Like they, they needed a fucking sledgehammer to, to fix it. So, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that policy is important and it needs to be bold policy in order to make a meaningful dent. <clears throat> do, do you believe that it also needs to have uh, bipartisan support in order to be durable? Um, well, in, in the sense that like, you have to be able to enact legislation. So not really, actually. Let's say that um, one party sits with, with a majority and they can force legislation to come through. That's really what you need. So, I mean, in that sense, you need bipartisanship if that's what the political situation is. But you could also imagine a different political situation. It's certainly been true in America from time to time where a single party or coalition has sat with sort of just a majority or supermajority. And then all of a sudden you can do things, right? Um, I mean, in fact, you look at the UK right now and you look at what's going on with Brexit and... Yeah, do you know what? They just did an election and they just, the, the populists just awarded uh, the sitting government a clear majority and they're pushing Brexit through and it's happening. I mean, I'm not, I'm not cheering here. I'm just stating fact. Um, so what you need is people in power to have power and the willingness to wield that power. Um, that's how you make changes. If, if, if the, you have a, a government with the power, with the mandate tomorrow, to say, for example, well, we're going to do all of it, right? Like we're going to raise gas prices, but we're going to build um, public transportation networks. We're going to sort of subsidize people who are hit by this. We're going to do all these things. We're going to do the whole interconnected solution. And they they put it out there. Like that would be the fact, right? Like it, it looks like 
the world is always um, change looks impossible until it's done. And, and I do believe in that. I, right now, I just don't have a whole lot of faith that that's going to happen because it's going to require a majority to believe in partially personal sacrifice, partially uh, a rejig of their lifestyle. And I don't just don't think there's in the U.S. at least, I don't think a majority of people are interested in that. So one of the things that's come up on my climate journey is that uh, uh, is that one of the reasons that coal, you know a lot of what we've talked about today has have been from a Western perspective. Uh, yet there's still over a billion people in the world that don't have access to even basic electricity, uh, and yes. so I think those are the regions where, for example, uh, you know they're, they're, they'll build with coal because it's the only thing they can afford, and then. When we come in and say, no, no, you can't because we have this carbon problem. And they're like, you know, they, they look at you as right. like, a, you know, or me as an totally, affluent totally. white American male. And they're like, dude, like you have never lived in our shoes. And if you did, you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be saying it that way. You'd understand. And, and they would be right. Yeah, they would be yeah, right. So, I mean, one, but, one but, the huge but, but we have a carbon problem and, and, and deep adaptation. Right. And so so given as pessimistic as you are about the overall problem, how do you how do you balance that with an issue like energy poverty, for example? It, 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 yeah, I mean, this is. Uh, I'm also a big fan of uh, Jason Hickel, who wrote uh, the Divide, which uh, talks about the global north and the global south, and he's linked that, um, and and so does the conversation in, in the uninhabitable earth, with the fact that the, it's the global north that's really causing these issues. Right, but the global north is feeling a minority slice of the consequences. It's the global south that's feeling the majority slice of the consequences, and yet they are the ones who've done the least on a per capita basis to to cause the problem. So this is <coughs> absolutely a core um, reflection of the global inequities that that are ongoing, and um, it is completely ridiculous for the global north to say like hey you guys can't build coal plants because like we have a carbon problem while at the same time essentially having a build up their entire economies based on those same tools and b continuing to release 10 hundred 10 thousand times as much co2 per capita as uh, as someone in the global south uh, i think this is why it, it, i am pessimistic because in, in which ways have the global north ever tried to make real amends to the global south on any of these inequities never and that was on an easier time where you could say oh well we wanted to correct some of the evils of colonialism or, or whatever and not a whole lot of interest in that right in fact it's, it's the opposite that the global north continues an absolute economic assault on global south uh, the book the divide by jason hickel is a great primer on on what's going on so it, it, given that be the context like are, are, like climate change is going to be the thing that that changes that equation i don't think so so i know we're running up on time uh i, I have a few final questions if i can uh, squeeze them in one is just that given how pessimistic you are you talked about your personal carbon budget and and you know trying to minimize your flying and that kind of thing i mean is that uh is that it in terms of in terms of your the, the steps you'll personally take to try to address the problem, or, or are you thinking broader than your personal footprint? Um, it's a good question, and and I one of the reasons why I, I am so pessimistic is because it's like I look at my own sort of carbon footprint, right? 
And um, we try to do some things around the edges, but I also just realized, you know what, as a rich person living in a Western industrialized country, like our existence is unsustainable at like a core level. Doesn't mean we can't sort of improve. It just means that like the improvements that we need, if you were to have an equitable carbon budget, let's say a carbon budget per per person, like a global carbon budget, right? Like it would be so low as to like, yeah, I'm not going to get there on an individual level. I just I'm not going to live in the the hut um, doing the things that need to be done to to do that. And that that's part of the kind of the pessimism and the existential dread there is that like, even when you think like, ah, now I have at least a basic awareness of the issue, right? And like, to, for me to get to the personal sacrifice of, um, of of being at the carbon budget that would sort of be a global budget per capita, yeah, I, I can also just be realistic and say like, that's just not going to happen. Uh, and part of that is, is this feeling of like, well, you're not going to be the only sucker sort of essentially living in a completely aesthetic um uh, life in the same sense of when when I ask for like hey you know what we should raise taxes somewhat right people often retort well you can just send a check to the um, to the federal government right like if you love paying taxes so much yeah I, I could I could just give all my money uh, right now to the federal government and it would change absolutely nothing so th- this is why I'm, I'm I'm so down on the issue because even on my personal <laughs> balance it just yeah. But everything I hear is about your personal footprint and whether it's going to matter. And if I have one plea to leave behind with you, and if this means I run out of time and can't ask my, my normal questions that I ask everybody, I'm fine with that. Because what I want to say to you is that you are a smart guy who's done a lot with a lot of experience and a lot of connections and a brand and a platform. And your personal footprint, I agree. It's like, you know what? You, you should not take steps because it would be hypocritical and because you need to align kind of everything with your values, right? But, but like you could swing a much bigger bat focusing on this at the systems level and you're in a great position to do so. And nothing I'm hearing you talk about is about the things that you're going to do to help the system when if you actually pointed yourself in that direction and got serious about it, I think you'd be surprised at what kind of impact you could have. And I know that firsthand because of the experience I've been having over the last 12 months. And I'm far less accomplished than you. Well, I, I, I don't think that those two things are in opposition. So one of the things we're doing at Basecamp right now, inspired, as you say, by an example, by what Toby is doing at Shopify, is to go like, you know what? We're a small company. We should be carbon neutral. What do we have to do to get there? And part of my pessimism is... is, is what that road has led me down uh, sort of looking at like, what do these offsets look like? And then you look into what they really are and you're like, yeah, that looks shit. Um, and, but I mean, I can, I can hold both ideas in my head at the same time. I can hold the idea that like, I'm going to change how our personal carbon footprint is going to be. I'm going to talk about that as I've done extensively. I'm going to highlight um, sort of the impacts as they, they happened and, and shine light of that. I'm going to, a point base camp towards a, a direction where we go carbon neutral. And I can still believe that even if we do all those things, by far the better odds is that as a planet, we're going to fail. Now, so, I understand couldn't, that couldn't you do not, a lot more if you focused on it more directly, though? And I, I'm not, that, I mean, you might choose not possible. to, and that's fine, but. I, I, that, that is what it is, right? Like, I, I think the odds, in fact, are so poor that I'm not going to. Um, and, and you can say like, that's a personal failing and, and it is in, to some extent, but 
I'm not going to stop the rest of my life to essentially um, focus blindly just on this, or not blindly, solely just on this issue, because um, I think the odds are so poor. So if, if we are to uh, run out and we're the last generation to enjoy a habitable earth, um, yeah, I mean, that was the run. Like, I mean, I, I know it's shitty to end on such a pessimistic note. And I know this is why all the sort of the books don't do that, including the uninhabitable earth um, kind of tries to end on like the positive. No, if we really get it together and we do it, then then we can change it. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to believe that, but I don't. I, I think we're going to fail I, at this. I, I, see, I see. Whether that's true or not, I can't live my life that way. I'm going to leave it all on the field and I'm going to die being able to look in the mirror knowing that I did everything I could. And and to be fatalist in that way, like, even if you're right, I just don't think that we have anything to gain by anybody having that attitude. I agree. <laughs> and this is one of the other sort of cognitive dissonances you have to hold in your head that, like, at an intellectual level, I can look at the situation and assess the odds and think, yeah, I think we're fucked. I think by far the overwhelming evidence on everything is that we're fucked or that by the time we get to the realization that we don't want to be fucked, the earth is going to be uninhabitable for a very large number of people and the world is going to be very different. So I'm in part sort of going the stoic way here and preparing myself for the fact that in my lifetime, I'm going to live on an earth that is uninhabitable in a large variety of ways. Um, and and I can believe that and I can still try to do my own part and I can still sort of cheer people on who are doing it. I can still boost messages that are doing it. I, I can hold those two things in my head at the same time, both having uh, uh, intense pessimism about the odds that we're really going to do this. Like, essentially, I think there's zero chance that we're going to stay at two degrees, right? Like, it, not happening. Like, you, you look at just the amount of data, the trajectory we're on, the changes that are currently happening, we're not staying at two, two degrees, right? Like, I, th I mean, this, that's not even a controversial statement. There's plenty of estimates that are already showing us we're going to be well in advance of two degrees. So given that that's happening, like the world after two degrees change is already a very different world. Um, I'm readying myself personally for the fact that like, hey, we're probably not going to stop at two degrees. It's probably going to be three, maybe four. And like, yeah, that's going to be very different from what it is now. These things are not in opposition to the fact that like, I want to do something. I'm going to change some things. I'm going to hope to provoke some change and I could be wrong, right? Like that's, I surely as hell hope I am. And I hope that like, we are going to have this epiphany and maybe the epiphany is simply generational. Maybe the epiphany simply is you have a bunch of people who currently vote and aren't willing to make dramatic changes who sit on a lot of sort of accumulated privilege in their life of, assets or otherwise and they don't want to change their life and then you have new generations coming up who, who don't have any of those things who in some ways have way less to lose in terms of the existing economic system and they completely change the equation and all of a sudden we have a voting public that goes we're going to vote for dramatic consequential change even though it will completely reshape society as we know it and like i would be thrilled i seriously hope that that's going to happen well, I know we're running up on time. I feel like we could have spent a whole other hour at least and, uh, you know, and, and, and kept going on this stuff. But uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Before I let you go, any parting words for listeners? Anything I didn't ask you that I should have? Well, I'd say my parting word is like, I, I hope more listeners have your um, outlook on things. 
I think uh, probably um, we are better off if there are more people who truly believe with with or, or willfully choose to sort of deny the pessimism that I've uh, put forward here because um, maybe that will help. I'm giving you my honest assessment here and and that assessment is um, is not cherry. So I think maybe it's good we're not going another hour because I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'd end up too depressed at, uh, at the end of another hour here. I think no, we need to see good progress for we, that to turn around. <laughs> but we've captured this moment. And so whether it's six months or a year or three years or five years, you and I, my friend, are gonna do this again at some point and and it's a you'll call it a friendly wager uh and and it's uh and as i said whether you're right or you're wrong you might be right but uh just personally i, I i'm going to choose to live my life as an optimist and try to recruit as many optimists as i can to have the biggest impact that we can whether we've got a shot or not and then i can sleep better at night and and do the best that i uh, that i can and uh you know and it, yeah so I'll leave I, it there, I but, applaud you. I applaud you for yeah. that. Uh, I, I wish that I could do the same. I, I, I truly actually do that. Um, I, I wish I could just sort of deny the logical parts of my brain that look at patterns and form pessimistic um, estimates and just go like, no, we're going to solve this. We're really going to do it. Um, but hey, I, I've been wrong on plenty of things. So maybe I'm also wrong here. And maybe like uh, we, we talk again in three years and like the, the curve at least has changed, right? Like until we at least start to just like decrease the amount of CO2 we release every year, I, I will remain very pessimistic. And right now we're just on an upward trend and it seems like there's the catalysts for change always seem to be too far out. But Anyway, thank you again for having me on and thanks for devoting your um, advocacy to this. I think it's incredibly important. Like I'm, I'm not prevent or presenting the pessimistic outlook because like I don't believe that change should happen or whatever. It's, it's quite the opposite. It's that I wish that all these things would happen, but um, that right now um, I, I just don't see them doing. So anyway. Now, now here, here's, a, here's a question for you and no pressure. Feel free to say no, but there is uh, my climate journey slack room that is, filled with people that are focusing on this problem from a very wide range of backgrounds, from scientists to grassroots activists, to government officials, to CEOs and investors and, uh, and policymakers, lobbyists, et cetera. Um, if you want to take a spin around in there and chat with some people, I know they'd love to talk to you, but uh, you can, you don't I, have to I'd answer me now. But, but, sure. Yeah. No, but, I'd be but happy I, to, I, to, to join. I'd happy to be convinced. Otherwise, no. Because here's the thing, David. That normally I have a rule with my climate journey that um, that I'm focused on people that have already taken the red pill and are ready to help, but don't know how or want to do so more effectively. For you, I'm willing to make an exception, and I, you know, you're like my I've little taken project. The red that, pill. Yeah, I, I have <laughs> taken the red pill. Uh, the, the problem is, I've just it gave me a fucking hangover, right? Like the fact that I have seen reality, I have seen what is no. to come. No, and, and adaptation is not red pill. That's not red pill. Red pill means I can't not think about this and I'm going to do everything in my power to help. Uh, you know, I can't not think about this and I'm going to try to plug my ears and pretend it didn't happen because it's too depressing is not red pill. I can't, I can't accept it. I, I, I applaud your definition of the red pill. And, and uh, yeah, I, I hope that more people in the world do that and get that. I, I truly do. Well, I will right, see you in the for, room uh, yeah. and, yeah, and, and we'll, we'll make this an ongoing discussion. Thank you, sir. Sounds good. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.com.
.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.